Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. The ancient Egyptians postulated seven souls. Top soul, and the first to leave at the moment of death, is Ren, the secret name. This corresponds to my director. He directs the film of your life from conception to death. The secret name is the title of your film. When you die, that's where Ren came in. Second soul and second one off the sinking ship is second. Energy, power, light. The director gives the orders. Second presses the right button. Number three is Cool, the guardian angel. He, she, or it is third man out. Number four is Ba, the heart, often treacherous. Number five is Ka, the double. The Ka, which usually reaches adolescence at the time of bodily death is the only reliable guide through the land of the dead. Number six is Kahabit, the shadow, memory, your whole past conditioning from this and other lives. Number seven is Seku, remain. halfway to China. Ah, yes. The seven souls of a human, according to the ancient Egyptians. From the Sopranos. Why am I playing it? To show you how sophisticated the ancients were when it came to spirituality. And we're now just catching up in many ways. Not even spirituality as on this episode, we'll reveal how technologically advanced our ancestors were. Did they get this technology from aliens? The gods or Prometheus himself? Or is it simply man's ability to solve problems and understand patterns? An incredible skill, but alas, it always casts a long shadow, as we will also see. Such a disappointment. We can make anything we fancy in this arena of infinite promise. And this is what we come up with? Weapons? War? Surely we have more imagination than that. 
Get ready for another incredible show as we discuss ancient advanced technology. From Atlantis to Egypt to Persia to Mesoamerica and everything in between. As well as timeless lessons even as we think we live in remarkable times when in reality it's the same story in a shifting hologram. I say the empire never ended. The empire is the institution, the codification of derangement. It is insane and imposes its insanity on us by violence, since its nature is a violent one. And this is Aeon Bite, a timeless place beyond the hologram, the inner sanctum of gnosis outside those outer rectums of reality. You have arrived to find your true self as well as trace those long shadows for answers on why the world is ending. By the time of this show's release, the election and its effects will be felt one way or another across these outer rectums of reality. And much of the population will be in a state of stress and trauma. But it's not real. It's just part of the hologram shadow, a spasm of hubris pain from ancient Atlantis. Many might feel right now like what Schopenhauer said, life is a business that does not cover its costs. It might feel like what Hayameyo Storm said too, according to the teachers there is only one thing all people possess equally. This is their loneliness. And it certainly might feel like what the poet Hausman said. I, a stranger and afraid, in a world I never made. They sell us this lie that... Love's gonna save us. And all it does is make us stupid and weak. Love? isn't going to save us. It's what we have to save. It's all by design, a holographic design. They want to wear us down, treat us like frogs in boiling safety. But we, the children of Hermes, the god of thieves, and Sophia, the goddess of smugglers, are just getting started and have endless energy because we have thrived in shadows and holograms most of our existence. The insanity and distress the population feels is just hello darkness, my old friend, to us. Our plight is certainly what the caterpillar told Alice. You are a terribly real thing in a terribly fake world. And that, I believe, is why you are in so much pain. Pain makes us strong enough to do it. All our scars, our anger, our despair, it's armor. God loves the sinners best because our fire burns. Bright, bright, bright. Burn with me. But pain is our armor, and we are the ones eternally walking away from Omelas. The ones who are not going to fucking wait for Godot. 
who can navigate a delirium that covers Western culture, a large shadow. We have chosen ecstasy over entertainment once and for all. Yaldi Baldi and his archons continue piling on falsehoods and chimeras, but they underestimated us. They didn't realize that our madness and curiosity has no limits, and that behind all the shadows of our life, our divine spark burns with endless creativity and bottomless laughter and timeless empathy. They are wearing down the collective consciousness of humanity, but we are just getting started. Where hope dies, imagination must live. So here we are with our seven souls and shadow work, mad and curious until the end of time, here at the end of the world. Do what you want. Take what you want. Gods make rules. They don't follow them. The priest and the king have hidden and exploited transformative tech for thousands of years in the name of Moloch and Sebek, and they do so today. So we uncover the past, as the Gnostics always did, to find relevant truths and heal trauma to see the arc of Promethean fire across history. In other words, and as mentioned, let's take a voyage to Atlantis and other civilizations with their sophisticated technology and medicine and engineering. For this, we have the honor of being joined once again by the brilliant Frank Joseph who materializes at the virtual Alexandria to discuss his latest book, Ancient High Tech, The Astonishing Scientific Achievements of Early Civilizations. Get ready for a phenomenal interview because Frank always delivers the gnosis. This man that marvel at the universe, that glorious paradox who sent me to the stars, still make war against his brother. As a bonus beyond the second part of the interview, I'll include a section of our last interview where Frank makes the case for the historicity and full relevance for today of the story of Atlantis. Way down below the ocean, where I want to be, she may be. I feel like I'm taking crazy pills! Beyond Donovan's Atlantis, I have been obsessed lately with the Sopranos, Legion, the Temple at Delphi, and the musical Annie. Don't know why, but there is a reason in this hard knock life, my beloved true seekers. I got this, as crazy as I am. We got this. As been pointed out by individuals like my friend Jim, People assumed the Gnostics were dualists who separated light and darkness like some fundy Zoroastrians. No, what the Gnostics did was always hold up all polarities in front of them and within them, seeing the horror and awe of the universe simultaneously, keeping both Aeon and Archon in their vision. 
accepting and integrating light and darkness equally, even as they followed shadows and dispel holograms. What is the universe without each sunrise? And that's how we judge our gods. Not on their math, but their poetry. Or as Jim told me, it's tough to simultaneously hold on to the realization that we're in a dark pit and yet we're likewise in a kingdom of light. The word Dharma means to hold. And while the term has degenerated into relatively modern notions of upholding the law, even if for Vedic or other religious laws, I'm guessing it was originally all about holding this state of allness, simultaneously beholding both the dark and the light. I've always strongly suspected that this is what the Manichaean sensibility and point of view have been all about. Even if their enemies, as well as even Gnostic scholars, are far too happy to collapse their reality into being an either-or, black or white, dark light proposition. In truth, it's their own black and white bias that does so. And while sure, I believe the Manichaeans were inclined to seek out the light and become the light, they weren't insane masochists after all. They uniquely refused to ignore the darkness. And so, whereas they've been characterized as the ultimate either or sect, I believe they were just the opposite. The ultimate both slash and sect, which is certainly reflected in their syncretistic approach to their beliefs and strong women disposition towards inclusion, even to a fault. We all die eventually. The real tragedy is forgetting to live. Save yourself. Why you still can. So you've got this because that's who you are. A being of gnosis who can hold up all sights before you. A being of madness and curiosity. A beautiful artist with lofty reason. So let us visit our ancestors without judgment and see the good and evil they accomplish even as the Demiurge attempts to cancel all of history. And we'll learn as the world goes dark outside so we may light it up once again. The Empire never ended and there is nothing selfish about freedom. Now, I think what is going to happen in the future is the dictators will find, as the old saying goes, that you can do everything with bayonets except sit on them. That if you want to preserve your power indefinitely, you have to get the consent of the ruled. And this they will do, partly by drugs, as I foresaw in, uh, in Brave New World, partly by these uh, new techniques of, uh, uh, of propaganda. 
they will do it by bypassing the sort of rational side of man and appealing to his uh, subconscious and his uh, deeper emotions and uh, his physiology even and so making him actually love his slavery I mean I think this is the danger that actually people may be in some ways happy under the new uh, regime but they will be happy in situations where they oughtn't to be happy This is the AM Byte interview, and with us we have the pleasure of having back Frank Joseph, this time to discuss his new book, Ancient High Tech, The Astonishing Scientific Achievements of Early Civilizations. Frank, thank you very much for coming back on the show. Well, the pleasure is all mine. And with us, too, we have somebody who also definitely enjoys this topic very much, and that is the Moondog Vance. Vance, how are you doing? Oh, good. Looking forward to all this ancient technology, uh, one of my favorite things. And as Fire Sign Theater said, the Aztecs invented the vacation. <laughs> <laughs> That's an old one. Love it, love it. But, uh, yes, the book is uh, so full of information. Really enjoyed it, Frank, and we definitely want to unpack all this uh, incredible information that you have researched from this book and from your many years of doing this, uh, what I feel is invaluable research. But first I wanted to simply ask you, uh, the last time you were on, Frank, was 2015. Time flies, and we did a show on Atlantis. And I remember you telling me you were gearing up an expedition to Atlantis. How has that gone? Well, it has uh, gone the way of all flesh, thanks to the coronavirus that put a <laughs> kibosh on that, yeah. as it has things all across the board. And it's uh, it's unfortunate, but uh, everything in God's own time, as it were. So um, everything is still in place, and after the world has regained some level of normalcy, Perhaps we can undertake that again. Oh, I definitely hope so, because uh, Atlantis has been a sink. I mean, I've always been fascinated by this myth. We talked about it. I've read your books mm -hmm. on it. But it's been very much a, a sink and in my head, and that's probably not that strange when you consider what has happened to the world, how since we talked, AI, robotics has taken so many leaps in the idea of transhumanism. Of course, Atlantis is a great tale of man's hubris against uh, nature or the gods, and that, of course, manifests with the whole pandemic. So it's uh, definitely been in my head. How about yours, Frank? Well, absolutely. And uh, as a matter of fact, I've, I really tried to avoid mentioning Atlantis at all in this text, ancient high tech, but that I found is impossible. Because as I was doing more research into the origins of ancient uh, uh, artificial intelligence, I found that there are some real suggestions, only that, but suggestions nonetheless that there was some technological origin way back in time and that uh, this technological origin uh, has Atlantis written all over it. And so I, I couldn't help but to avoid uh, mentioning some of the uh, interesting themes that show that what we consider so much uh, 
a part of our time, so much iconic for the 21st century, really has origins back many thousands of years. And what is what is new is really very old. I would agree. I don't think you, you can't really avoid Atlantis. And uh, as you write, don't you think that Atlantis really uh, brought together or brought forth the ideas of gunpowder, elephants, and so many other, uh, you might say, technology? Yes, there are uh, very strong indications of that. And uh, some of the more interesting things I was able to find uh, connecting Atlantis to this were back uh, in the Greek myths themselves, which uh, tell about, uh, they talk about a, uh, a mythical version but a highly advanced concept, which is amazing for a people that supposedly lived in a pre-industrial age. And this is the uh, the story of Talos. And Talos is described in Greek myth. And this myth is at least 3,000 years old, and very possibly older. And Talos was this automated uh, military robot that was uh, said to patrol various... Uh, islands, especially the island of Crete, and that this automaton on its own was able to determine whether someone arriving towards Crete was friend or foe. And if it was friend, then the arrival could pass. And if it was determined that it was not, then this uh, Talos, this mechanized uh, weapon, uh, would fire at it, with uh, would toss uh, great boulders at it. And the story of Talos is, uh, I think, should be kind of familiar to a lot of uh, modern Americans because he was shown in a Harryhausen film mm-hmm. back in the 1960s called Jason of the Argonauts. And there's this um, large robotic um, titan which is patrolling the beach and guarding the treasures and so forth. And how is it possible that uh, a people without any inkling of this kind of technology could have invented a story about it. So it's uh, just like the stories of Jules Verne, for example. They did, were not invented out of whole cloth, as great as a genius as Jules Verne was. And he, he was, a, of course, a tremendous visionary. Nonetheless, what he did is he extrapolated on the science of his time, the mid-19th century, and brought it forward and was able to create things like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and things like that. And that's the same way it was with these myth-makers, there must have been something in their society that they could extrapolate, pushing it forward into the future, or at least into myth. And so there may have been something like this. And there are other indications that these very ancient uh, examples of artificial intelligence were rooted in an actual kind of technology that was going on at that time. And I don't want to go on and belabor your uh, point there too much, but as we'll point out here, there were uh, great advent- uh, adventures at uh, Alexandria during the uh, centuries before Christ that achieved real robotics that we do know about, that actually did exist. We know about these. They're on a much smaller scale than Talos and the uh, military application of artificial intelligence that supposedly took place a, a thousand or more years before. But nonetheless, the ancient world was not uh, ignorant of artificial intelligence. And what I mean by the artificial, by the ancient world is not just Western Europe. The uh, Chinese were able to achieve great things with uh, uh, automated uh, servants 
and automated uh, warriors, just very similar to what we have today. They used not electricity, it does not appear. They used weights and counterweights and were able to achieve really great things with some of the things that uh, that they were able to, to produce it so long ago. Oh, yeah, indeed. And, uh, yeah, I do, I, as a kid, love that movie, Jason and the Argonauts. I remember that scene where Talos turns his head. As a kid, oh, I yeah. was terrified. I was like, oh, my God, how do you defeat this robot? Yeah, as a kid, I was like, this is a robot. But obviously he had to, well, he really had an Achilles heel. They just had to open. And the myth is actually, I think, Medea who does it. But, of course, in the That's movie, correct. you had to have the correct. macho men do it, right? <laughs> yeah, well, that made good cinema in those days, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And... uh your book obviously proves that uh, ancient man wasn't the, they weren't these uh, uh, knuckle draggers who are just sitting around waiting for a thought and praying for the gods to give some rain to their meager crops. They were, these men were very advanced. They knew, well, as you said, they knew the ideas of robotics, AI, they speculated yeah. upon it. Atlantis actually probably had very modern tech, but. What do you think of this, Frank? Um, a lot of people always like to say, well, human beings got this from the gods or perhaps aliens. And we think, of course, mm -hmm. the, the myth of Prometheus and the Watchers of right. Enoch and the Anunnaki. And it seems to make sense that humans would have gotten that because they were so advanced. But at the same time, it's almost kind of insulting to them. It's saying, well... You guys were just dumb, and the gods helped you out. What could it? Could we, is there a happy medium, or what are your thoughts on this? Well, I agree with you. I think there's a happy medium, and as a true scientist, I think we have to uh, keep an open mind on all these possibilities. Now that the United States government and the United States Navy has admitted that there are these uh, unknown aerial phenomena, as they call them, um, the whole um, question about UFOs and extraterrestrial life is now in a slow process of disclosure going on. And if it's as official as that, then I think we'd be foolish to exclude uh, possible evidence that might show that, yes, there was some kind of um, interdiction or interrelationship of some kind. The problem, though, is finding something as advanced as uh, the ancient technology we're going to discuss tonight. Trying to find uh, their origins in an extraterrestrial source, I really have not found that. Um, this doesn't mean that because I haven't found it, it doesn't exist. But nonetheless, I think you're right, that our ancestors, given enough time and um, enough uh, impetus, created these things. I don't really see these uh, instances of uh, high technology as gifts from uh, extraterrestrials. They seem really quite earthbound for the most part. There are some that are very questionable, I have to admit that. But it's something I think we have to keep uh, open. We have to keep it on the table. I don't discuss the extraterrestrial uh, possibilities in my book at all. This doesn't mean that they don't exist, uh, that they didn't exist. But I, I was not able to find a direct connection between the two. But nonetheless, like you say, we should uh, keep all possibilities on the table, especially these days of this slow disclosure that's taking place. Oh, I agree with you. And then on a, a little side question, then we'll really delve into your book. But it's uh, more and more obvious, especially when they they open up government files that both the Russia and the United States have had secret 
telepathy, uh, ESP programs, and obviously even people like uh, atheists like like Sigmund Freud believed in telepathy, somebody who was a materialist. So don't you think the other thing is we have to maybe accept or that we humans are really connected to each other's minds and our minds are more powerful than we could believe, regardless of what part of history we're in? Well, there was a very great thinker uh, in the mid-20th century. He was a Catholic priest by the name of Teilhard de Chardin. And he believed in something called, or he didn't really believe, but he at least posited the idea of a noosphere. And a noosphere, he stated, was a kind of a layer of the atmosphere that contained all of the thoughts, the ongoing thoughts of human beings now and in the in the past and possibly even in the future. And that sometimes under certain conditions we're able to tap into this noosphere, that there is either a conscious, sometimes a conscious tapping into it, as the Tibetan Buddhists are sometimes able to do supposedly, and then subconsciously people are influenced by that. Um, more than just a hypothesis, there is some evidence that such a thing as the noosphere or this common level of the atmosphere is made up of all the thoughts, all, at least of all the passionate thoughts of human beings. And one of the instances that comes to mind was the um, first postulation of the theory of human evolution, or of, actually of evolution, by D- Charles Darwin. Well, on the the exact same time that Charles Darwin was working out this apparently highly unique theory about uh, life evolving on Earth, his colleague on the other side of the world in Java, the other side of the world from England, where Charles Darwin was postulating his theory of evolution, Wallace, uh, his colleague, who he had not spoken with on any of these problems at all, was at this very same moment postulating the same theory. And so it's understood now that the theory of evolution, as it's been handed down by Darwin, is usually now described as Darwin-Wallace, because both men were working on precisely the same concepts and even expressing them in very similar language. Now, how can we explain something like that unless there was some powerful telepathic, uh, energy going on at the time. The, the work of Rupert Sheldrake in our old t- own time has talked about morphic resonance and so forth. And these are things that are cutting edge, admittedly, and they're difficult to accept if one uh, wants to just uh, embrace a materialistic uh, view of the world. But nonetheless, uh, they do suggest that there is some kind of a, an ether, as it were, or a, uh, a common intellectual ground not seen just like Tesla said, he somebody asked him one time how to explain things, and he said, everything is frequency. So in other words, if you can tap into that, if you can grok that, you can see how common thoughts, yes, will um, coalesce and influence each other. Just like gravity. Who would think that Mars would be, the planet Mars would be influenced by the Earth? And yet we know now that it is. The closest that Mars ever comes to Earth is 34 million miles away. That's very far. It's just a dot on the sky. And yet the gravitational field of the Earth does affect its uh, orbitational uh, course uh, in a minor way, to be sure. But imagine that. All that distance, more than 34,000 miles, 34 million miles, and yet uh, there are these unseen forces that, that are at work. And I think that it's just nothing wrong with thinking that 
yeah, thoughts can have the same thing. Thoughts are energy, just as gravity is energy, and just as Tesla said, everything is frequency. So um, I, I don't want to stray too far from this, but I, I, I agree with your uh, concept that, yeah, people do influence each other in ways that they don't consciously recognize. Mm, well said. Yes, everything's connected, and I think the the great lesson, even if we unco- finally uncover the potential of our mind and the power that we have, is uh, I remember in our last interview you were talking about the the lesson of Atlantis, and you said, "Well, Atlantis is a great lesson on how uh, an advanced civilization can happen when everybody sacrifices themselves for the greater good for something wonderful." And you let that get uh, corrupted. And then you talk about Plato saying that uh, something uh, similar to technology is a wonderful servant, but a cruel God. So I think these are great lessons for today. Won't you, don't you think, Frank? Well, there were, there were great lessons during the Cold War, but definitely today. <laughs> well, I, I think for all time, and uh, it's especially interesting that Atlantis is becoming such a popular subject yeah. because maybe subconsciously people recognize that we're beginning to look like Atlantis in its last <laughs> <Yeah>. days. <laughs> you know, where you had this wonderful society just as America began with this incredibly idealistic republic, nothing like it had really been seen before, at least not in the modern world. And it was a tremendous, a huge achievement of the founding fathers to have made this republic and that it lasted so long. And uh, now we're faced with things that are very hostile to this very concept. And, of course, even to the people that created the the concept of the Constitutional Republic are becoming more demonized. And it's a very Atlantean scenario that's going on, quite honestly. What's also interesting is that uh, the more that Atlantis society declined morally, the more that it declined in terms of its ideology and its culture, the more the Atlanteans uh, leaned on and... uh, sought support from their advancing technology. So the country was torn in half, whereas or the civilization was torn in half between this uh, decline, this overall cultural decline, and this advancement this that was going on in technology to make sure that life was continuously at ease and that things were done for them. And uh, the result of that, but th- this, uh, this dichotomy, this self-destructive dichotomy tore that civilization to bits, tore it in half. And um, so I think we're seeing similar things going on here. I mean, technology is, is a wonderful thing, there's no doubt. And I think it's, it's marvelous that our ancestors were able to achieve such incredible high levels of uh, applied science that we are only just beginning to see today. But if you depend on that only, if you think that if you get to the point where your technology it's so powerful that it can cure all your ills and that it gives you some kind of a license to do everything else you want culturally and morally, that's when a society is doomed. And that's the, that's the great lesson that comes not only from Atlantis, but from these other societies. Here we're talking about imperial China and, um, and Rome and Greece, all these countries that achieved such greatness, greatness uh, be, even beyond anything people understood until now. And yet what happened to these societies? They all ended up as ashes. What mistake did they make? How could they have lost their societies when they had such high levels of uh, technology and cultural magnificence? What happened? Why are none of them around today? And are, are we to think that we're immune from the and exempt from the same forces that uh, dominated these people for much longer than 
Our society has been around. Rome lasted for between seven and 800 years. We're only around a little more than 200 years, and we're already in decline. So uh, people like, uh, I'm thinking like, uh, oh, the, one of the signers of the uh, the peace treaty at Versailles, Comanso, he said the United States is the only country in history that's gone from uh, its foundation to decadence without the interval of civilization. I think that's rather <laughs> taking it far, uh, but nonetheless, uh, there's perhaps something to be said for that. and. We have to be careful. I think we have to be very, very, we're in a very, very critical moment, and uh, we've got to decide whether we can learn from history or uh, we don't, and we're beaten by history. So I don't want to, I, I don't want to be on a soapbox about that. Oh, so it's wonderful. Right that, so. <laughs> well, yeah, we need, we need these reminders more than ever, all of us today. Like you said, we are at a crossroads, and uh, it's precarious, and we have a lot of dangerous toys, and we tend to be very cruel to the environment and animals and other human beings and other parts of the world. So we need this message and we need to continue hammering it. So another great civilization, obviously, that is just as mythical and legendary and captures the imagination of the public uh, just as much as Atlantis, and that, of course, is ancient Egypt. And there is one part of your book, Frank, where you... uh you're talking about the Great uh, Pyramid, and you quote John Adams Jurdy, chief architect of Minnesota's Mall of America. And uh, they they basically ask him, could you build a pyramid today? And uh, Mr. Jurdy answers, with modern building facilities and methods, perhaps. But if I was restricted to using the tools of the time, the answer is no. That's pretty mind-blowing. Yeah. I mean, how do they do it? <laughs> Everybody's still wondering about that, huh? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that the technology there is gone, whereas the pyramid is still there. It's the same with our buildings today. When they made the Sears Tower in Chicago, the Sears Tower is still there. But all of the uh, derricks and everything else that was used to build the place, they're all gone. They've probably even been dismantled long ago. And it's the same thing, I think, in the ancient world. They did not want to keep the. They did not want to memorialize this technology. There was no need of preserving the technology after it had done its work. So they went on and just built more examples of it. Uh, another example is a, an amazing uh, work that everyone is familiar with. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and uh, that is the Colossus at uh, Helios. And this was this great uh, statue that stood atop an even uh, taller platform. And um, this this uh, statue was made with a technology we no longer have any privy to. We don't know how they made that. We don't know how we made the great how the great pyramids were made either. There, there is all kinds of uh, explanations. Uh, and all these explanations have fallen through. They are completely inadequate when viewed in the the course of the monument itself. So we don't know how these things were made. Uh, we do know a few things though that have come about. That the great pyramid was not built over the course of many generations. It was not built by slaves. The Great Pyramid is far too complex a structure to have been built by um, untrained and uh, non-professional um, manual laborers. The skills that went into it are still uh, absolutely astounding, as you were able to quote from the architect of the Mall of America. So something like that, it required a, a level of technology that 
uh, worked very quickly. We now know that it was built within 20 years, which is astounding. Incredible. That it was not built over the course of generations. We know that because of the, carb- the uh, more recent uh, carbon dating material. This is some of the things I'm mentioning to you that I, I haven't mentioned in the book, by the way. This book could have been three times bigger than it <laughs> <Yeah>. is. There's <laughs> so much more out there, and so much more that I've learned since then. But the carbon datable material that's found in the Great Pyramid, there's not much of it, but that has been found, has all been uh, basically within a 20 to 50 years spread. So that's amazing that the, the structure was made. In other words, it was planned out and then just built. And you only do that if you have the uh, not only the high technology to do it, but you have to have a precursor. The Great Pyramid was certainly not the first of its kind because it's flawless. It is a flawless building. That's the other astounding thing about it. We don't build flawless buildings today, obviously. We do the best we can. Some of them are really fantastic, really great things. But that building is flawless, and it has stood the test of time. To think that that structure is 5,000 years old and really is fundamentally the same as the day it was built. And it's been very badly abused when Egypt fell and was... Uh, taken over by uh, Islam, the uh, beautiful limestone covering of the Great Pyramid uh, was absolutely stripped, except from the very top area, or the topmost area by the apex. And so what you see now is uh, a naked ruin of what it was originally. But fundamentally, at least, the construction is still there after all this time. Egypt also was a uh, a site for numerous earthquakes, even in the fairly recent past, the last major earthquake they had was in the mid-14th century A.D. Now, of course, that's you know, a blink of the eye geologically. But since then, um, for reasons uh, geologists don't entirely know, geophysicists are not completely sure of, Egypt is no longer quite the uh, uh, tectonic uh, zone that it was at one time. So that's kind of interesting. But nonetheless, the Great Pyramid is still stands after centuries of earthquakes and centuries of human abuse. Oh, yeah, it's incredible. In your book, Ancient High Tech, uh, definitely gives a lot of details. You talk about how it's uh, it contains two and a half million limestone rocks brought from 500 miles away and so much more. It's an incredible uh, structure and anything around or what the Egyptians were doing, but I guess the the sixty four thousand dollar question, and we're we're dating ourselves like we're talking about the movie Jason and the Argonauts, or I'm dating myself by saying that. But what was the purpose? Uh, you write that it was sort of a, a a place for vibrational energy, like you write that the Queen's Chamber was meant to send vibration up to the King's Chamber, or it was sort of an energy source. Well, this is the interesting thing: the mainstream explanation for the Great Pyramid is that it was a tomb. Now, any person who has visited the Great Pyramid today, and millions of people have visited the Great Pyramid, will find immediately by going inside the pyramid that there are very small and narrow corridors. They're very narrow. There is no decoration inside the Great Pyramid. There was has never been any. There's only uh, one written uh, cartouche in the Great Pyramid, and that now appears to have been uh, fraudulent, that that was done by an archaeologist in the early 19th century. We won't get into that. That's a no whole very discouraging story. But, you know, if you're going to have a, the, the funeral for a pharaoh, 
you're going to have this immense sarcophagus that was always demanded of the pharaoh, it would have been physically impossible to maneuver such an object or to have the huge uh, funeral services, the mortuary services that were done for the kings of Egypt inside the Great Pyramid. It doesn't matter. It, it is physically impossible. So what is this thing? Uh, what could it possibly be? Why would anybody build such a thing? Um, to cut to the chase here, because, of course, we don't have all that much time to dwell on this one particular site. But if you do a cross-section of the Great Pyramid, uh, the Khufu Pyramid, as is, is referred to, what does it look like? What does it resemble if it does not resemble a mortuary temple? And it is not a mortuary temple. There, there's no, no discussion even about it anymore. But what does it resemble? It resembles really only one thing, and that is a transducer. A transducer is a device, an electronic device, that was invented in the mid to late 19th century, or reinvented perhaps, a transducer is a very simple object. All it does is it takes mechanical energy and transforms it into electrical energy. The most uh, obvious example of that today is another piece of technology that's uh, been outdated, and that's the phonograph player, the record player for the uh, long-playing records, the vinyl records back uh, before they were replaced. And on the tone arm of a record player, you had a needle and the needle would pick up vibrations off of the groove in the record. These vibrations would then go into a crystal. The crystal would transform these vibrations, this mechanical energy, into electronic energy, and hence you had the music, that were the sound that was coming off of the, the record. That actually is what the Great Pyramid is. It is an immense geotransducer. And what it does, or what it did, and still does to some effect, it transmuted tectonic energy, which was really quite prominent in the uh, Nile Valley at the time that this structure was made 5,000 years ago. It transmutes this tectonic energy and changes it into electrical energy. This electrical energy, energy can then be applied in numerous ways. But one of the ways that it most was used, uh, at least for the people that were in the area, is that it creates... Uh, a very strong, powerful field of negative ions. And negative ions have a therapeutic effect that are used in hospitals today. Uh, patients that are uh, having difficulty with uh, standard forms of anesthesia uh, require uh, the application of negative ions. And the, the negative ions have the same general effect as anesthesia for these patients. The ancient Egyptians apparently understood this, and they used this negative ion discharge, which must have been phenomenal, to have a, uh, a religious effect, a spiritualizing effect on people that come in contact with negative ions. That's what is reported today by numerous uh, uh, patients who, while undergoing negative ion therapy, uh, report all uh, kinds of uh, paranormal uh, visions and so forth. That's because it inter interfaces with a part of the human brain called the hippocampus. The hippocampus is the, the seat of these, um, the capacity for having these uh, paranormal visions and so forth. It's a complex thing, and I don't want to overstate myself on this, but to cut to the chase on this, I believe, and I'm not the discoverer of this, by the way, I, I can't take uh, credit for this. This was first 
uh, proposed by uh, a very great uh, writer today. Uh, his name is Christopher Dunn. He is a uh, construction engineer par excellence, and he was studying the Great Pyramid beginning in the 1990s, and he and I basically came to the same conclusions, that the Great Pyramid can only be a geotransducer, which was used to transmute these dangerous tectonic fields. Like if you want to build a great civilization in the Nile Valley, and the Nile Valley is a wonderful place to build civilization because you have this abundant alluvial soil, all you have to do is just literally throw a seed into the ground and it grows. <laughs> yeah. So you have tremendous fertility. But the the, uh, the trade-off on that is it was seismically active. So it's hard to hold your buildings together, hard to hold your civilization together if you're having earthquakes all the time. So the Great Pyramid and its 99 or so other pyramids, if you see them from the air, they seem to be like a, a, a stitch that goes along on either side of the Nile River. And the Nile River itself was, and still is to some extent, a, a fault zone, a major fault zone. And that's what uh, created, as a matter of fact, the Nile many millions of years ago. All this tectonic activity resulted in creating the Nile Valley. But if you're going to want to create a civilization there in this otherwise agriculturally ideal setting, you better have some kind of a technology that can transmute those tectonic forces and uh, to keep your civilization holding together. And that's what the technology was that's behind the Great Pyramid. The Great Pyramid, in effect, is a device that has not yet been in, reinvented and that we could certainly use today. It's not unique, however, and civilizations in other parts of the world have created things similar uh, to the Great Pyramid. And we can talk about things in Peru, for example, the earthquake-proof buildings of the ancient Inca, for example. They still stand. And the reason they stand is because they engineered a type of um, construction technology that did not resist earthquakes but went along with them, that followed the flow and was able to maintain their structural integrity over the course of many centuries. Mm. Frank, uh, do you uh, think that the um, um, purpose of the Great Pyramid, aside from being a transducer, could, as the Rosicrucians teach, be associated with uh, initiations in their religion? Maybe they had uh, the psychotropic effects or whatever of the transducing you know, effect in the ions um, was part of their initiation. I think it's really hard to uh, avoid that conclusion because uh, we do know about the effects of negative ion therapy and that even atheists will claim to see angels and so forth. Now, whether uh, skeptics want to believe that this is just the effect of the hippocampus or, uh, as someone else might say, well, this opens some kind of a uh, psychic uh, portal in us, I don't know. I can't, I can't uh, speak to that. But nonetheless, I agree with you. I believe that the uh, Great Pyramid, like buildings everywhere, every time you have a major building, even going on today, they don't serve a single purpose. They serve multiple purposes. They have to serve multiple purposes because of all of the uh, economic investments in creating something like a skyscraper. You don't just have it because it's a television tower. You don't have it just because it's an office building. All, all these other functions that the great skyscrapers today have. It's because they have multiple functions. And that's the same thing with the Great Pyramid. It had multiple functions. First, it's its most immediate utilitary function was to make sure 
that we were not experiencing all these destructive earthquakes so we could get on with uh, building civilization, uh, uh, pharaonic civilization. But at the same time, the consequences were having this enormous fountain of negative ions which were bombarding the Egyptian populace. And look at the result of that. There is hardly anywhere else in history a parallel to the high spirituality that the Egyptians achieved. Their religion, if you want, it isn't even a religion. It's beyond a religion. Uh, it's, it's a mystical experience that the Egyptians went through. They didn't have theology like we have today. Uh, so a follower of Osiris could just as easily have been a follower of Isis or Sebek or any of the rest of them. It was the the Egyptians emphasized the mystical experience. They weren't interested in theology or texts or approaching religion from a, an intellectual point of view. That didn't occur to them. It was unnecessary. What they went for was the mystical experience. They had believed in a kind of a religious theater. So there was this ecstasy that the Egyptian people were seized with. And I believe that being bombarded by these negative ions, which would induce these mystical experiences, as, there, as are proved today, uh, I think that that was a part of the major function of the Great Pyramid. I do believe that. These corridors that you see in the Great Pyramid and the small chambers, the king's chamber is very small, 30 by 30 by 30 feet. It's a cube. The Queen's Chamber is even smaller. These are nothing more than service corridors. This is nothing more than you would have people go in there to do fundamental maintenance from time to time. And that's why the it's hard to imagine, but the Great Pyramid is the most un-Egyptian building in all of Egypt. The most <laughs> un-Egyptian. Why is that? Because every other building in Egypt, inside and out, is covered with hieroglyphs. It's covered with temple art. The Great Pyramid is not. It never has been covered with temple art. It has never been, uh, its walls and its interiors have never been uh, profuse with hieroglyphs. Why is that? Because for the same reason we don't decorate the inside of our factories. <laughs> That's the same thing with the Great Pyramid. Those internal configurations, if you compare uh, the side view or the cutaway view of a transducer and put it right up next to side view of the Great Pyramid, you will see the commonalities between the two. And that's, that's what this is. It is an immense, huge, ancient, advanced machine, a kind of technology that we could sure use today because earthquakes are still a problem. There's earthquakes on the on our planet every day. Some of them are enormously destructive and take tens of thousands of lives. So by, and by studying the Great Pyramid, we can learn how to duplicate it, I think, on a, on a smaller scale. One more thing, one last thing about the Great Pyramid, because there are other things we should talk about. None of this uh, is old. It's highly new. Um, just three years ago, uh, the French did, uh, the uh, archaeologists from, and, uh, and electrical engineers, working with electrical engineers from Paris, were able to find that even to this day, the Great Pyramid has its own electrical field. They were shocked to see that. Where does that electrical field come from? It comes from the Earth. It is still transmuting. Enough of it is left to improperly, uh, not in focus, use those tectonic forces that still exist from time to time. The uh, Great Pyramid has been seen for, oh, God, I guess countless years, to sometimes have dancing over its apex, this blue light. 
It's a mysterious phenomena, but it has been photographed. There's even been videos of it. Uh, people staying at the Mina Hotel will sometimes at night go out to look at the Great Pyramid, the moonlight, and they'll be shocked to see this blue fire dancing over the apex of the Great Pyramid. Well, that's known as the Andes Glow. It's called the Andes Glow because if you have in the Andes, uh, many of the mountains are uh, have a lot of granite, and the granite has a lot of quartz. And when you've got this tectonic uh, action taking place in the Andes, and of course the Andes are very earthquake-prone, you will see this blue light phenomenon. That's what's called the Andes Glow. That's when the tectonic forces squeeze the quartz uh, matrix inside these mountains and produces a piezoelectric effect which discharges itself in these negative ions and lights up the atmosphere in these, this blue aura phenomena, precisely the same as the Great Pyramid. So all these details combine to define the Great Pyramid as this incredible piece of technology. That's why I devoted a whole last chapter to it. Uh, it's vitally important that we study the past. This is an example of how history is not something that's just nostalgia or wasn't that cool long ago. <laughs> we can learn from the past and apply it to our own time. And I think that now that Christopher Dunn has written this wonderful book, it's called The Giza Power Plant. It's been out for quite some years, and it has stood up incredibly well. And all of my research has absolutely confirmed all of his uh, groundbreaking work that if this book, The Giza Power Plant, was studied, I think, in greater length by the movers and shakers of our society, we would have to say we should attempt to do something similar to this and go to places like, uh, like back to like in Peru and uh, certainly in China where they experience these uh, cataclysmic earthquakes and see if now this ancient technology can be used today. Well said indeed, and uh, incredible revelations or insight or research that you found uh, with others but so uh, moving on perhaps to other civilizations i have a lot of questions and a lot of notes but i thought i'd ask you to your own personal view and the research you did for ancient high tech uh beyond the pyramids what is to you frank one of the engineering feats of ancient man that you just go whoa this has stayed with me this is amazing do you have one that sticks out yes i have a, a personal favorite yeah. and that is something called air gra e-r capital g-r-a-h and it is in ruins today but it stood the test of time for many thousands of years and we're talking about a site on the coast of france in Brittany. Uh, right across from from England. And today, if you go to Ergra, you will see these three immense stones that are in the ground. Until as recently as, I think about, if I have the date correct, it was sometime in the, 17, in the 1670s. There was, these stones belonged to this enormous stone that had been erected on the coast of France it stood over 60 feet tall. It weighed about 120 tons. I give you an idea about how much 120 tons are. 20, 120 tons are about two uh, diesel locomotives combined. Wow. Someone was able to erect this stone on the coast of France 
more than 4,000 years ago. This is during Neolithic times. This is uh, during the called the New Stone Age. We have no idea who did this. They erected this stone. They did shape it slightly. It looks originally like a needle. There's no uh, difficulty in knowing exactly what it looked like because the three stones uh, are still there. When it fell over, when this object fell over, uh, it broke into these three uh, pieces, enormous pieces. The bottom piece of it is engraved with that of a an axe or a hammer. More looks more like a hammer. Now, this stone called Air Gras, it's a Britannic name. It just means literally the big stone. But Air Gras, <laughs> when it was erected, it was erected about you know, at least uh, 2000 BC, probably much older than that by this late Neolithic time. The precision of this stone is astounding because Alexander Tom, who is this uh, Scottish, uh, a leading Scottish uh, uh, astronomer, was able to determine that Air Gras was so perfectly positioned that you could use it as a gnomon, G-N-O-M-E-N. A gnomon is, a, you can use it as a stick or a stone in the ground in which you can do some pretty basic um, calculations on the appearance of various celestial phenomena, where a star is going to be, where a planet is going to be. Air Gras, when it was erected, you know, I told you 2000 B.C., I am wrong. That is much older. Wow. It goes back to 4,000 B.C. This is incomprehensible. A 6,000-year-old gnomon, which was erected 60 feet tall, over 60 feet tall, 120 tons, and its alignment to the phases of the moon, to the appearance of the constellation Pleiades and other astronomical phenomena. Uh, how is it possible that a pre-modern people could have erected this structure that we that we had no derricks, no machinery, nothing like that at all, and to not only erect it, but to have set it up with such precision that you could do accurate mathematical computations on the positions of various celestial phenomena. I mean, that to me, and it stood there from about 4,000 B.C., and then we're talking 6,000 years ago, it's incomprehensible, it stood there until an earthquake knocked it over about 1670 A.D., something like that. I mean, what are we doing that is, that is going to be around for that many thousands of years <laughs> after our time? Now, we don't know who erected that. We do know that when it was erected, it was about 4,000 B.C., and we do know one of the reasons why they made it, because it can have uh, this wonderful alignment with the heavenly bodies. But like all buildings, as I said before, they have multiple purposes. The other thing about this stone is it could be seen from 12 miles out at sea. So it was a marker for sailors. Well, we're told by mainstream archaeologists, oh, the, our ancestors back in the Neolithic time, they were... They were too f afraid to go into boats, and they never went anywhere, and they uh, they never went uh, by the sea. They, they were just dragging little... their knuckles. <laughs> right, just... and they're just maybe fishing boats up on rivers and creeks, and that's about the extent of it. But here you had this gnomon that was set up to be seen from 12 miles out of sea. 
the most amazing thing about this, well, I don't know, there are many amazing things about air gras. The other thing about it is the stone, the, the topmost stone, shows evidence that it had been struck repeatedly by lightning. Air gras is made of stone that has a great deal of quartz crystal in it. It was set up suggestively, we don't know for sure, but it suggests that air gras was set up as a lightning rod to call down lightning. And that that axe or that hammer that is inscribed on the side of air gras on the bottom stone, that is generally regarded as by archaeologists as a Neolithic sign for lightning. So it's conceivable that someone long ago created this incredible engineering feat for one of the purposes being to attract lightning. You can see why they would want to do that, because that would really impress your cult followers, wouldn't it, though? You've got a storm <laughs> coming up, and you let's say you know how this thing basically works. We're going to call God down here. God's going to show up, and this thing gets hit by a powerful lightning bolt, and it was hit repeatedly by a lightning bolt. There are other Neolithic structures that appear to have done that. There's a, a, a site called Kalanish, on the west coast of Scotland, in a Neolithic center, the great stones infused with quartz crystal. And they also have been repeatedly hit by lightning over the course of time. So it's possible that there was a lightning cult. How, how better to impress your followers than saying, well, you come here at a certain time, and when the, the electrical storms start gathering, we're going to, we're going to see God appear. <laughs> he did in a very dramatic way. Then they passed the collection plates, right? Uh, <laughs> well, and I'm sure people shelled out. You know, it was quite yeah. an impressive show. You have those that weren't scared to death by it. You know. <laughs> but uh, that, that to me, is, is really one of my favorites because we have no idea who did this. We know nothing about the, the technological wherewithal of this unknown people. And yet there is Air Gras. You can still see it today. Well, like I say, it's been knocked over. But in its original condition... Uh, what a thing! What a magnificent uh, achievement that was. There are, there are so many. Maybe that's not the greatest of them all. That just is one that really just mind boggles me because of its profound age. You know, this thing was made before the Great Pyramid was built, a thousand years before the Great Pyramid was built, and yet wow. somebody had the wherewithal to to conceive this and then to erect something like that. And it would stand for millennia thereafter. That's a tremendous uh, achievement. Was it moved from somewhere else? The stones came, they know where the stones came from, not too far away. Uh, but nonetheless, moving stones like that over 15 miles, that would be an achievement today, would it not? I mean, the, the individual stone was, well, it's one solid stone. One solid stone weighed 120 tons. I don't care whether you have to move it 15 miles or 15 feet, how you could even move it at all. And how could you set it up? And how could you set it up in such a way that it would be a gnomon where it would precisely predict the positions of various celestial phenomena? How could you position it with that sort of finesse? The Great Pyramid has the same sort of finesse. Those building blocks that weigh as much as, well, like the, the, the uh, stones that go over the so-called king's chamber this roof an internal roof what is that all about and the stones there each one weighs as much as a locomotive 
and they're set with incredible precision uh, without a mar or a scratch on any of them. How do you do that? Levitation, right? One of the possibilities for how these stones were done was suggested by uh, a very brilliant uh, American researcher back in the 1950s, the early 1950s. His name was Edward Kunkel. And Edward Kunkel said, hey, well, look, everybody agrees the Egyptians were fabulous irrigationists. No one contests that. They were, that's what really made their civilization in the beginning, because they had total control and domination of the Nile River. They could flood areas and make farmland. It was just fabulous. They were very great irrigationists. Well, he suggested that the Great Pyramid, at least its first half, or maybe a little bit more, was made with a coffer dam. The coffer dam is something, nothing more than a sort of an artificial a wall that you insert into an area where there's water that you can control through dikes and dams and so forth. And you're able to raise and lower the water with inside this coffer dam. So he suggested that these great stones were literally floated into place and that they were raised by raising the water level. And then it didn't take even many men to just float these 50-ton stones into perfect position. And they are in perfect position. How are now the, the Great Pyramid was originally over 400 feet high. How are you going to lift 50-ton stones 400 feet in the air, fit them in with a jeweler's precision without scratching anything? So the only way we can really understand that may not be the only way but edward kunkel's theory really has never gone out of style and no one's ever been able to really say well he's been wrong on that it fits because the the egyptians were great irrigationists and they applied their irrigation to creating this this titanic coffer dam in which they floated the stones and put them into place that would explain why the great pyramid was built so quickly 20 years and why it did not require slave labor, but it did require skilled labor. And I think that, that fits. That's, that's the answer, I think, that is still a theory, but it's the most convincing theory in my book. What do they float them on, though, you know? Who knows? They were able to float their stones. Well, this is, of course, mainstream science, too. We know that the stones, uh, the great work that was done, the granite stones that went into of the Giza Plateau, they came from uh, quarries over 500 miles away. In other words, it would be like floating the stones from Memphis, Tennessee, to Chicago, Illinois. Uh, the achievement of this whole complex, the civilization, is something that is still makes us stand in awe of and would be uh, very difficult for us to reproduce today. And as the architect of the great um, Mall of America pointed out, Impossible to create with the stone tools that archaeologists say the Egyptians were limited to. Copper chisels and stone hammers. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> it's a joke. Yeah. Check out Frank's book because there's so much more. But Frank, as always, it is an honor to have you on Aeon Byte, and we appreciate you taking the time to discuss your latest book, Ancient High Tech, the Astonishing Scientific Achievements of Early Civilizations. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed very much our conversation. I felt it was more of a conversation than an interview, and that's, that's why I enjoy being on your program. You have as much uh, input to make on it as, as anyone else here, and it's, it's just great. I really enjoy that. 
And there you have it, my beloved truth seekers. The first part of our interview with Frank Joseph. Hope he makes that expedition to Atlantis soon enough. In our second part, Frank will discuss the Baghdad battery and other ancient electrical sources. Frank will talk about the ancient use of biological warfare and advanced weapons. From the Aztecs, Knights Templar, Vikings, Chinese, and more groups. This will include history's first flamethrower thousands of years ago. We'll discuss the advanced tech of the Romans too. We will move to more benign but still mind-blowing ancient discoveries, including in medicine and surgery. Did you know that the ancient Egyptians never had cancer? Find out why. And how did the ancients deal with viruses and pandemics? Find out too. And much, much more. As a bonus beyond the second part of the interview, as I mentioned in the intro, I'll include a section of our last interview where Frank makes the case for the historicity and full relevance of today of the story of Atlantis. So become an AB Prime member or Patreon at Patreon for the full tech disclosure. Only $6.99 a lunar cycle or whatever you want to pledge on Patreon. You won't find this Gnostic content or many of our guests anywhere in cyberspace or even meat space. When you subscribe, it will cost you about a buck per episode, and that's a deal of many lifetimes. Membership includes full access to the archives with more than 500 episodes, 14 years of quality interviews. You'll also get an invitation to the Inner Sanctum of Gnosis Facebook group and the Discord channel, where many past guests hang out there, and I'm always there to answer your questions. Even support in the form of some shekels to PayPal or the US mail really, really helps. Don't forget the new merch store and my Amazon wish list as I always need equipment in this universe of entropy. Finding Hermes is live and already very successful. And so is the virtual Alexandria exclusive private meetings that include spiritual and mental exercises loyal to the ancient Gnostics that can greatly help you and we also have a whole lot of stimulating conversations on many heretical topics and a Q&A. All live or with a recording. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self. Here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye as always.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.